the National Archives podcast series, Scandals in the Family, presented by Audrey Collins. I was asked to do this talk as an Explore Your Archive event, and I have spoken about the, uh, this particular family and their scandals, the Boyntons of Burton Agnes, but that was about five years ago, and I've discovered a bit more since. So even if you've heard this before, you might learn something new. I certainly have. Burton Agnes is a beautiful house in the East Riding of Yorkshire, and the Boynton family go a long, long way back. The house, which is open to the public, and I'd strongly recommend a visit, because it's a very nice house. It's an exceptionally nice garden. They were there for a very, very long time, and although the family there at the moment are not called Boynton, they are still direct descendants of the same family. The Boynton family generally are pretty interesting. They were quite a, a lively lot, and there are some fairly interesting incidents going back through the centuries. But the one I want to concentrate on mainly relates to George Boynton, or to give him his full name and designation, Captain George Hebblethwaite Lutton Boynton. And this all started with one document. Apart from being an interesting story that comes into the you-couldn't-make-it-up category, it's a nice example of how you start off with one accidental find and then from that take your research to all sorts of other areas, different archives, different uh, sources of information and other documents within the National Archives. And this is what started it all off. I'm very interested in fraud. What I was actually researching was frauds committed to do with registration, people altering birth certificates or registering fraudulent deaths. But I came across this in a catalogue search, and this wasn't really what I was looking for, but the catalogue description was fraudulent abstraction of a leaf from the registers of St Pancras Parish, baptism of Elizabeth Laura Keeling. I thought, that looks interesting. And I went back and I followed it up, and I ordered up this document, which runs to many pages, several thousand words, and it's in home office correspondence. Now, home office correspondence is a wonderful place. All human life is there. All sorts of people wrote to the Home Secretary about all sorts of things, very often in a state of high indignation about some real or perceived injustice. And this particular document, this statement, was written by a man called Mr Prickett of Bridlington in the East Riding of Yorkshire. And... This is his statement, which is actually a pretty good narrative of um, not the whole story of Captain Boynton and his misdeeds, but a fairly good summary of quite a lot of it. And this was in 1866. And Mr Prickett is particularly concerned with events of 1865. And his beef is that his daughter was now the wife of Captain Boynton. Mr Prickett was not happy about this. Now, there isn't a great deal that the Home Secretary could have done about this <laughs> because uh, you know, the, ma- the marriage was a perfectly legal one. But the story that unfolds relating to Captain Boynton's earlier history, as well as the events leading up to his marrying Mr Prickett's daughter, is a fascinating story. Now, I'm not going to read the whole thing out to you. You'll be relieved to hear. But one of the early paragraphs, he starts off, he says, In the year 1849, Captain Boynton, being then 21 years of age, eloped with Miss Laura Keeling and clandestinely married her. Miss Keeling was then 17 years of age and was possessed of a considerable fortune. Under pressure, we are informed, of a threat that proceedings would be taken against him on a charge of having procured the licence by fraudulent means, he was induced to make a settlement of his wife's fortune, two-thirds of the income being settled on her for life and one-third on him for life, the income of the whole on the survivor for life and the capital on the children of the marriage. Now, at this point, you need to know a little bit about... uh, a couple of important pieces of legislation. One of them was the Married Women's Property Act, which at that time meant that a married woman had no separate legal existence. 
uh, if you as a single woman owned anything at all, the minute you married, that became the property of your husband. The other thing is the law relating to marriage. And there was reasonably clear law about marriage at that time, that you had to have a bans or license, had to be between certain hours, you needed permission of parent or guardian if you were underage, and so on, and various formalities. Now, there were certain things that absolutely had to be the case for a marriage to be valid and to remain valid. That is, you couldn't be too closely related to the person you were going to marry. Both of you had to be free to marry and so on. But there were very, very few things, though, that would make a marriage invalid if it took place under those circumstances. If you got married without your parents' permission or you forged consent forms, all sorts of things like that, that was a wrong thing. But once done, the marriage was valid. And it could only then be challenged if there was some fraudulent intent. And this uh, is what he was referring to there. Now, Professor Rebecca Probert, who's spoken here, and we've got her, I think, two podcasts of her speaking here, she's written a book on um, marriage law for genealogists, and I would strongly recommend that because it states a lot of things very clearly that I'd only had a rather vague knowledge of before. So reading that book will explain an awful lot of this. Now, this marriage, which uh, the elopement... Well, frankly, if you're going to run away and marry in secret, I don't think I would recommend the fashionable church of St George Hanover Square as the place to do it. But it could be described as a runaway and elopement because he had procured a marriage licence, which is much more private than uh, having bans called. And she was indeed 17, and therefore underage. They did marry without the permission of her mother, as, as the case was. Her, her father was dead, so uh, her mother was still alive. And her family were literally an hour or two behind them. There was a great chase went on uh, on the road to Windsor. It's all in the newspapers. It's just fascinating. But what Mr Prickett was referring to was a deal was done and according to the newspapers, this was in an upstairs room in an inn on the road to Windsor, where the, the family um, caught up with uh, the, this, the, the couple, uh, and uh, a bit of horse trading was done. Now, they could have challenged the marriage on the grounds that the license had been obtained fraudulently, with intent to deceive. And this would have been a good case, because the marriage license or rather the, the, the allegation, was that he said quite correctly that you know, he was George Boynton and his age and his fiancée was underage, but that she had no father, which was true. Her father died when she was a baby. And she had no mother living and unmarried to give consent. Well, the way you got to be an adult as a woman was to be a widow. So you could actually enter contracts and give consent and so forth. As soon as you married again, you didn't exist anymore as a legal entity. Your husband, your new husband, was now the, the, the legal figure and the one who would, if the case arose, be in a position to give consent to a marriage. So the wording on the licence said she has no father, true, no mother living and unmarried, also true. What it didn't say was... She has a mother living and remarried and a stepfather who would be the man to give consent, a man with a rather wonderful name of Trophimus Hodges. So the family could have challenged the marriage on those grounds. On the other hand, um, if your eligible um, young daughter has um, run off, is, is the subject of a scandal... On balance, you'd probably rather that she was married than not, even if you didn't approve of the husband, because she would then be damaged goods and she wouldn't be such a good marriage prospect. Although in this case, I actually think she would have been because she was very rich. And this is where the Married Women's Property Act comes in again, because 
Her father, who had died when she was a baby, was extremely rich. She was his only child. And unlike a lot of men in that period, he'd rather carelessly not put in uh, sort of protective clauses in his will, uh, but had left money outright to any child or children he may have. Now, he made the will very early in 1832. His daughter was born uh, in April 1832, and he died at the end of October. So he may have already been ill. He and his wife had been married for about five years at this point, but he actually mentions in the will that his wife was now pregnant, so there was at least one child on the way, and you know who knows, there might have been more, but in the, in the event, there weren't. There was just this one, Elizabeth Laura. And because a lot of money had been left outright to her, that made her the most terrific target. This is why you will often see in wills money left to a wife so long as she remained my widow. Women were very often left a very substantial income, but they weren't very often left sums of money outright. Or if they were left anything, whether an income or an outright sum, there would often be a clause saying for her own personal benefit and not for any husband she may have or subsequently acquire. So, And this was to protect women, whether they were young widows or young single women, from pot hunters, which is what Captain Boynton was. Now, Captain Boynton's family, uh, Boynton's of Burton Agnes, very old, very res fairly respectable family, very wealthy, but also a very large family. And George was if not the youngest child, he was close to the youngest. And he was certainly had at least three older brothers. Uh, so such money as there was in the family plainly was not going to come to him. He wasn't going to inherit the title. So he decided that the best way to make some money would be to marry it, which was a reasonably smart option. And he found himself the nice, wealthy young heiress and married her. So that was the elopement and the, uh, the marriage which took place under fairly shady circumstances. There was also another marriage because once this marriage was done in St George Hanover Square, the couple married a few weeks later in Etwall in Derbyshire. And I thought at first, oh, there's, there's another illegal thing he's done. No, this is perfectly legal. Uh, there is no, nothing in law that says you can't marry in the Church of England and then marry in the Church of England again. And the Boyntons were from Burton Agnes in Yorkshire, and the Keelings were from London and the West Indies, and there's another story there. So why Etwall? Well, one of George's many brothers happened to be a clergyman, and he was the vicar of Etwall at the time. So I suppose this would have been for the benefit of the Boynton family, having the proper family society wedding uh, with the, uh, the brother officiating. Captain Boynton was uh, in the army. He was in the Crimea. I'm not sure how much actual, actual fighting he saw. But he was in quite a fashionable regiment. And I suspect his re reasoning was that it basically costs you money to be a junior officer in a, in a very fashionable regiment. You have to provide yourself an awfully fancy uniform and keep up with a very lavish lifestyle but apparently an awful lot of women are terribly impressed by uniforms. I'm not one of them, but I do understand that this is a thing. So you can just imagine that rich or not, you know, a teenage girl would be quite impressed with a, a man a few years older um, with a really smart uniform who was interested in her. So that probably uh, helped his, his cause quite a lot. What we don't know about is how he actually went about courting and attracting Miss Keeling, but... As subsequent events show, I suspect he was probably rather charming. You wouldn't trust him an inch, but um, I think he must have had some charm about him to get away with some of the things that he got away with. Anyway, again, according to Mr Prickett, sadly, this marriage was not a great success. Well, if you're marrying somebody for their money, this doesn't entirely bode well. And he goes on to say that uh, in January, January 1860, Mrs Boynton instituted a suit against her husband for a dissolution of her marriage on the ground of her husband's adultery and cruelty. This wasn't strictly true. The case came to court in 1860, but she actually petitioned 
1858, the minute the new divorce law came in. But I, there was a, a fair old backlog, particularly from women who, who could virtually not get a divorce. It was very expensive for a man to get a divorce before 1858. You needed a private act of parliament. But it was all but impossible for a woman. So she actually petitioned in 1858, but it didn't come to court uh, and come to the attention of the newspapers until 1860. So that's why he thought that's when it was. So there is the divorce. We have the divorce petition here. And very interesting reading it makes. You get a, a, a very, very long complaint from the young Mrs. Boynton who uh, must have come down to earth with something of a bump because uh, no sooner were they married and they started off uh, an, on a, a bad footing because he thought he was going to cop the lot, get all of her money and he'd been forced into this uh, rather reduced benefit um, through these negotiations with her family. So she thought, well, I'm now the wife of, a, of an army officer. Isn't that a smart thing? Well, yes, as maybe, but... Um, he wasn't one for socialising in London and um, going around the nightclubs or whatever it was they had in the 1840s. He immediately took her up to Burton Agnes, right in the middle of uh, the countryside. Very much a hunting, shooting, fishing kind of family. And she was obviously bored rigid. And in fact, when uh, one of her complaints was that when their, their son, they're the only child of the marriage, so... They had one son, was born in 1851, that he was in, in Yorkshire sort of slaughtering wildlife and when news came that she'd had the baby, he did go to London but he didn't hang around for the christening because he didn't much care for that sort of thing, as he said. And she complained that he was very cruel to her and generally bullied her and that the rest of the family weren't very nice to her. Apart from his father, she says that her father-in-law was sometimes kind to her. But then he died fairly soon, so she was, uh, she was not very happy. And there's lots of witness statements of them. They were travelling around Europe and having big stand-up rows in the street, usually about money. And then he started doing um, really rather mean things. They'd book into a hotel... And they were a perfectly respectable married couple, but he would uh, go out of his way to try and give the impression that she was his mistress uh, and, and just, just generally baited her and was fairly cruel. Now, this is all her petition. His response to it was slightly more elegantly put, but it was roughly a, along the lines of, no, I never. Um, he didn't really have a terrifically good case. And the fact that one of the witnesses was that uh, was to the effect that round about the time when the son was born, while he was in London, they, and they were staying at her mother and stepfather's home at the time, one of the witnesses was one of the maidservants with whom he'd been committing adultery round about the time of his son being born. So he really didn't have a very good case. So she got her divorce, she got her money back, which was quite something. And sadly, the, this unfortunate child who by the time of the divorce was, uh, was now about nine years old. Nobody much seemed to want him at all. Neither parent seems to have been very interested in him. So he was in the care of his grandmother and he was shipped off to school. And we don't hear anything about him for a while, but he will return. So we now have the divorced Captain Boynton, who is somewhat out of funds because he's lost his heiress. So what does he do? He sets about finding another one. And this was the young Miss Prickett, Miss Elizabeth Prickett, who was the only daughter of uh, Mr. and Mrs. Prickett. Now, she wasn't quite as good a catch as Miss Keeling because both her parents were still alive and she had five brothers as well who could probably do you an awful lot of damage if you weren't careful. But he somehow managed to attract the attention of, uh, of Miss Prickett and this is when Mr. Prickett became very annoyed about this. He, he said... In the latter part of 1859, uh, and Mr. Prickett thinks this before the divorce proceedings started, in fact, it wasn't, not that it makes a lot of difference, he had, Captain Boynton had forced his attentions on Miss Prickett, then a girl of 16, he likes them young, in so marked and offensive a manner as to compel her father to write to him a strong letter of remonstrance. Captain Boynton denied the charge and Mr. Prickett took no further notice of him from that time. Then in April 1860, he sent his daughter down to uh, a finishing school in London. And 
somehow, who knows how, I think the smart money is on Miss Prickett, Captain Boynton found out where she was. And he went and he wandered up and down on the pavement outside the school, followed them to church, sat in a nearby pew, probably winked at her, but generally attracted her attention. Uh, and the, uh, the, the lady who ran the school informed Mr Prickett, uh, and he immediately whisked his daughter right back to Yorkshire, which is, of course, not all that far from where Bert and Agnes was. They were very much of the same social circle. So in the, he then took out what we would now call a restraining order, yeah. the master of the rolls, and a sort of cease and desist, you know. Lastly, we are authorised by Miss Prickett to inform you that any further renewal of your unmanly and cruel persecution will only still further excite the disgust and contempt she entertains for you. I am not convinced that these were her genuine views, as subsequent events will probably show. Captain Boynton was so terribly impressed with this that he went and just stuck it on Mr Prickett's front door. That was that for a while. Now, Miss Prickett had been 16 when all this started, but she didn't say 16 forever. Eventually, she got to be 21. And when you're 21, you can do quite a lot of things. Mainly, you can get married without your parents' consent. Now, for a woman to do this, you need to have some sort of independent wealth. And I haven't found the source of this yet, but reading between the lines, it seems as though she had some sort of independent income that her parents didn't control from some relatives. Maybe I'll find out one day. But one of the things that she did almost as soon as she turned 21, was rather surprisingly, she became a Roman Catholic. She had a cousin whose wife was Catholic, and she seems to have been very friendly with them, so she became a Catholic herself. Now, she may or may not have done this to annoy her parents, because it certainly would have had that effect. And the reaction of Mr and Mrs Prickett was one of mixed feelings, really, because they, wouldn't, they weren't too pleased that she was Catholic, because that just wasn't done. But on the other hand, the one silver lining is that if you're a Catholic... You cannot, under any circumstances, marry somebody who's been divorced. So at least she wouldn't marry Captain Boynton. So that was that. Well, you might think so. But he goes on to say in his statement that at one point in 1864, she just happened to be visiting her parents. She'd been staying with the cousin. In conversation with her mother about Captain Boynton, mentioned that it was a curious fact but in the Church of Rome, there was only one way of getting over the difficulty of marrying a divorced man. And that was by its being proved that his first wife was a Jewess, which Captain Boynton stated that his first wife was. Well, what a coincidence. <laughs> Spoiler alert, she wasn't. She was good old bog-standard C of E, like most of the rest of the population. So... Mr Prickett made sure that her sort of priest and confidant, Father Eyre, who was based in London, knew about Captain Boynton's past and that he was a divorced man. And Mr Prickett was also pretty darn sure that his wife had not at any time been Jewish. So he then did quite a, um, quite a smart thing, I thought. Because the, uh, the Boynton divorce had been all over the papers... And this, the reports obviously contained the name of the lawyers who'd been acting for uh, Mrs. Boynton. He wrote to them. Mrs. Boynton, the first Mrs. Boynton, by the way, was now in Paris, living on her income. She never remarried. So uh, I, I like to think that she, uh, she, she lived quite nicely for the rest of her life. The money that she had was actually in the form of a fairly substantial income. So she couldn't blow it all at once. So uh, I do like to think that she just had a very nice life in Paris uh, and was at least the mistress of her own destiny. So Mr Prickett contacted uh, Messrs Druce, the solicitors, to see if they could help, and they said, yes, we can. As a matter of fact, only last year, for some reason that isn't explained, uh, Mrs Boynton had requested a copy of her own baptism from the, the Church of St Pancras. People did this quite often. I mean, we've got lots of documents here in the National Archives. They are full of copies of uh, 
baptism and marriage certificates from parish churches because somebody has needed to produce this for some official reason or another. So this was a fairly usual practice. And London was, in particular, was absolutely full of lawyers, clerks, scuttling around from vestry to vestry, searching registers and getting copies. So they, they were able to say, oh, well, we know exactly when that was. Uh, she was baptised uh, on this specific date in 1832 at St Pancras, because that's where we got the certificate from. Brilliant, thought Mr Prickett. So he sent someone to go and have a look. And twice, in fact, and it couldn't be found, which was very strange. Well, to cut a very long story a little bit shorter, what had happened was that Captain Boynton had realised that it would completely undermine his, uh, his, his, his whole case um, if this baptism were found and his wife was proved to be an ordinary Church of England person. So he set about, he and a friend of his called Palmer went to uh, the St Pancras registry and they went and removed the page that her baptism was on. Now, if you look at the St Pancras register nowadays, you will see that there is a page missing. In, f in fact, the, the numbers of the entries don't add up either. It looks as though there's more than one page missing. But the important fact is that the page containing the baptism of Elizabeth Laura Keeling is not there. And there is a note to this effect with a reference to this particular case in the St Pancras Register, which is now very easy to see because these registers are now all online on Ancestry, so you can go and have a look at it if you don't believe me. So he and Mr Palmer went along uh, and just tore this page out, which means, of course, that all the other people on that page and on the reverse of it... They've also been removed. So if you are looking for somebody that you believe should have been baptised in St Pancras in about April 1832 and you can't find them, this might be the reason. So if you're a family historian, the first thing you would think of is, oh yes, but if you can't find something in the parish registers, you've got a backup. You've got the bishop's transcripts. No, you haven't. Because even before he'd been to the St Pancras Registry, Captain Boynton and Mr Palmer had been to the Diocesan Registry and they had removed the page from the bishop's transcripts. Um, I am guessing that he knew about this uh, because he had a, a brother who was a clergyman, so this might have been why he knew about bishop's transcripts. Searches in the Diocesan Registry are extremely rare. They said that was the first search that had been done in 1865 and there were no searches at all in 1864 so that was a pretty smart thing to do this didn't come to light straight away but when Mr Prickett discovered that he could not lay his hands on this all was not completely lost because the first Mrs Boynton in Paris offered to send and in fact did send the copy that she had so that this was a certified copy. This, this was as good a document as they would have got from if they'd found it in the registers themselves. And Mr Prickett made sure that this was passed on to the, the relevant bits of the Catholic Church, in particular Father Eyre and his superiors, and also to Miss Prickett herself, so that she could be in no doubt that Captain Boynton had been properly and legally married before, and he was definitely a divorced man, and therefore she shouldn't marry him. Now, at some point during this, we, we don't have Miss Prickett's own individual testimony, so there is no way of knowing for certain. But I think that she either knew exactly what was going on, or she had a sort of selective deafness, that she may have kind of suspected it, but chose not to, uh, not, not to examine it too closely. Either way, she was nowhere to be found. Her, her father was trying to find her in London. And uh, th this was by now autumn 1865. She wasn't to be found, and the message that came back via the Catholic priest was that though she didn't want her father to know where she was because Captain Boynton had told her that um, her father was so angry with her wayward behaviour that he wanted to put her in a lunatic asylum, which uh, Mr Prickett denies all, uh, all intention of doing that. So one way and another, she was keeping well away from her father and then Captain Boynton went and obtained the licence, 
He also managed somehow to get a sworn statement from a, a lawyer, an affidavit, to the effect that this copy that had been bouncing around was a forgery, which I think would have been extremely difficult to prove, but by that time it didn't matter because the deed was done and they were married in St. James Roman Catholic Church in Spanish Place. And there was absolutely nothing illegal or wrong about the marriage. The only people who would have any qualms about it would have been the Catholic Church, but as far as the law was concerned, he was divorced. It actually says on the, the marriage entry that um, his previous marriage was dissolved. But the Catholic Church they were quite satisfied that this fir first marriage, while valid in English law, had not been valid in the eyes of the Catholic Church. So from their point of view, he was a single man and that was absolutely fine. So there they were, married. Now, this seems to have worked out, as far as anybody can tell, reasonably well. They went and lived back in Yorkshire. At least that was her home and not just his. He wasn't taking a little London socialite. And they lived not in Burton Agnes itself, but in a house nearby. You can see them in the census, and they had a, a daughter was born there. and They're in the census, and you see that they're married, and then they're still married. Of course, there isn't a box to tick, you know, are you single, are you married, and then are you happy with this arrangement? So as far as we can tell, this was a perfectly, reasonably happy marriage. Sadly, the, the second Mrs. Boynton died comparatively young, um, but Captain George, he seems to have um, calmed down a bit, and although he was still no stranger to the inside of a courtroom because he was uh, being a hunt-and-shooting, fishing sort of man, he was um, from time to time in dispute with racehorse trainers and... Uh, uh, and, and the like. But he seems to have settled down and lived a relatively calm and incident-free life from then on. The, the, the whole of the document, it's got copies of all the, all the correspondence, only highlights of which I've read out, and a rather scruffy, penciled version of the, ma the uh, baptism certificate that was the source of all this controversy. The one place where you will find a note of this it's not in an official source, it's in a thing called Palo's Baptism Index. Palo's Marriage Index is reasonably well known, but there was also a Baptism Index. And a lot of that was destroyed by bombing. The reason the, these Baptism and Marriage Indexes existed was for the army of clerks who were running around London that uh, Messrs Palo decided it would actually be a fairly good idea to compile an index as they went instead of having people running around doing every single search as occasion demanded. So there is a scruffy little slip in Palo's marriage index which refers to the baptism of Elizabeth Laura Keeling on the 6th of May 1832, uh, daughter of Thomas and Anne. And there is a note which says that this, is, um, that this entry was supposed to have been uh, removed. Now, I haven't figured out a suitable way of sort of reverse engineering the, um, the entries in Palo's marriage index, which is also on ancestry, baptism index, which is also on ancestry, to see if I can find who the other people were who should have been baptised around about that time and are on the missing pages. Maybe somebody would like to have a go. That was that for a while. So it all goes quiet. There's, there's, there's been the, uh, the runaway marriage and then the divorce and all sorts of ructions. And then the other, not exactly runaway marriage, but certainly interesting one. And then it all goes quiet for a while. He's settled down with his new wife in reasonable peace and tranquility. First Mrs. Boynton's in Paris, I hope, living it up and having a lovely time. But remember the son, little George... <coughs> He was actually called George Henry Keeling Boynton. So he had almost exactly the same initials as his father, as well as a similar name, which is of some significance. Well, it's not entirely surprising that this young man um, wasn't exactly a model pupil and a model of fine, upstanding behaviour as an adolescent. When he reaches his late teens, we start seeing him in the records and I came across him really in the newspapers. He fell in love with an actress, <laughs> Mademoiselle Cornelie Danker, who was apparently a particularly racy burlesque star, at least in terms of late Victorian England, which is probably comparatively tame nowadays. 
Anyway, this young man, he fell, he fell in love with Miss, Miss Anka, and uh, she was um, not terribly impressed. She probably had lots of young men um, after her. But he was, he was uh, terribly serious, and uh, um, he, he offered to marry her. And she said, oh, don't be silly. Go away, you silly little boy. Uh, and um, he was threatening to kill himself if she didn't marry him. And, you know, he, he, he sent her a bullet, gift-wrapped, and uh, <laughs> uh, it all got terribly, terribly silly. So this was all in the newspapers. Um, and like his father, young George was also very keen on horse racing and particularly good at losing large sums of money. I don't know, I haven't seen any evidence that he was particularly interested in the horses and the training of them. I mean, Captain Boynton owned racehorses or shares in racehorses. He was actually interested in the whole process of racing. What I do have evidence of with young George, who had had very little contact with his father, was that he was very interested in the gambling side of it. Whether he was interested in the horses or not, I don't know. He may well have been. As I said, the Boyntons are very hunting, shooting, fishing sort of people. And when I visited Burton Agnes, when you go around the house, you see that there are an inordinate number of portraits of uh, horses and dogs, and uh, more, more than there are of um, members of the family. And the library um, has got lots of copies of the, you know, the, the badminton sporting library and the, and the stud book. Um, so he may well have been true to type. So we see him um, again in the newspapers not paying his gambling debts. Now, gambling debts are a matter of honour. It's okay if you don't pay your tailor, because that's only some lower middle class carry on. You know, there's, there's no great shame attached to that. Okay, you might drive somebody out of business, but who cares? Gambling debts are a matter of honour. And he appears in the newspapers. He knowingly was writing cheques when he had very insufficient funds in the bank. First of all, June 1871, he's in Bow Street Police Court on the charge of assaulting and threatening um, his actress lady. And then two years later, July 1873, he's at Marlborough Street for obtaining £105 by false and fraudulent pretenses, and this is a dishonoured cheque that he wrote at Tattersall's, which is where you settled up all your gambling debts. Interestingly, though, four days later, he got married. So she must have been a very forgiving sort. She, she either didn't know, which I think is unlikely, or she seemed to be quite forgiving. And then two days later, he's back at Marlborough Street Court, and as far as I can tell, he seems to have escaped his case being sent to the Old Bailey. Now, my educated guess, which I have yet to prove, and I may never be able to, is that for the marriage to go on right in the middle of the court case, it may be that her family bailed him out. I don't know, and there may not be any way of finding out, but it, it, it's, a, it's a reasonable theory. But th these, these dates are certainly correct because I've seen the, the, the court reports in the newspapers and the date of the marriage. So he married for the first time. Three years after this, in 1876, Captain Boynton, he's back in, uh, he's back in court again. I did mention that the Boyntons were a notoriously litigious family and they did quarrel and scrap among themselves from time to time. And his mother, Dame Mary, he was in court in dispute with her. Now, the Burton Agnes Hall, which was the family home, and that, that's where the, the dowager Dame Mary lived. But nearby, there's a smaller house called Haysthorpe Hall, which seems to have been in her gift. So it, this may have come to, come to her from her own family and not directly through the Boynton, so it's not completely clear. Well, the dispute was that Captain George claimed that she had settled this house on him and his new wife, the, the second Mrs Boynton, and their child or children, in the event they had one daughter. But she had also settled the house on one of her older sons, Charles. And it was actually Charles who was disputing this, saying, you've given the house to George to live in, but you said I could have it. And this came to court, and it was in the courts for quite a long time. Because, and I can't remember the details of it now, because it went to court and the decision was made one way, 
and then it went to appeal and then it went to the House of Lords. So this is an awfully long way up. You, you can't get any higher than that for a scrap within a family. And in fact, by the time it got to the House of Lords, uh, Dame Mary had died and it was the two brothers who were slugging it out. And in the event, George won. It was um, a very interesting case. Um, and it came out in the course of it that uh, Dame Mary, who claimed that, oh, I know I gave this to George, but it was under duress because I'm only a poor old lady and he was bullying me. I do not for a minute believe that she was a poor, weak old lady because various bits of evidence that came out were to the effect that she rather enjoyed playing her sons off against each other. Everybody needs a hobby, and that seemed to be hers. And she seemed to have been a fairly smart uh, lady. And uh, there the, are... The, there are various bits, you know, disputes here and there, and I'm sure as various bits of cataloguing continue to go on, I'm sure more will come to light. So um, the, the, she had settled the house on Charles, but then she rescinded it. And anyway, the final divorce, um, decision of the highest court in the land was that the house was for George to live in, but it was for him to live in. He had a life interest in it, as did his family. So if in the event he outlived his wife, but um, he and his wife and their daughter, they had the right to live in the house for their lives. So, that was Captain George back in court. But the really interesting thing comes in, in 1882, and this involves young George. Now, young George had plainly been strapped for cash, again, and he'd hit on what he thought was rather a clever wheeze. He went to an agent in London and said, my name's George Boynton of Haysthorpe Hall in the East Riding of Yorkshire. Bit strapped for cash, need to raise some money, want to sell the house, will you handle the sale for me? Oh yes please, they must have thought, thinking lovely commission. And he went on to say that because he was so strapped for cash. He'd really appreciate it if they were able to advance him a modest sum in advance of the sale because they would... And they, oh, yes, certainly we can do that. He said, it's, it's only, only to tide me over. It'll be for about a month. And they duly handed over the money and, and he would pay it back in a month with uh, an extra £25 on top, which they said wasn't interest. They were not Wonga. This was not a payday loan. But they said this was the expenses for sending a clerk up to York to his solicitors, whom he named in York, um, to do to, to all the requisite paperwork. Well, you can see what's coming, really, can't you? Uh, month came and went, no sign of him and the repayment. So um, they, they, they wrote again to, to the solicitors and they say, well, you know, we, we've never, well, we've heard of the Boynton family, but we've never acted for anybody, certainly not for. Um, George Boynton of, of Haysthorpe Hall uh, and then of course when they went into it he was doing a Micawber I think he was probably sure that something will turn up which of course it didn't because if he'd been able to pay back the money he could have then said oh no I've changed my mind not selling the house but thank you very much for the loan but of course something didn't turn up and he ended up being arrested he actually ended up in jail this time and Captain Boynton actually came down to, um, to London for the court case, so he's back inside a courtroom again. But this time he's neither, you know, he's, he's, he's not a defendant, he's not a litigant, he's just, just a witness um, in, his, uh, in his rather sorry affair involving his son. Well, young George's um, solicitors, they did the best they could, but really, you can't make bricks without straw, and he really did not have a leg to stand on. So um, they made a fairly spirited defence. They said, oh, maybe I didn't make myself quite clear. It wasn't that I, I, I actually owned the horse. Sorry, did you think that? No, no, it's what I have. I have a reversionary interest in it. When my father, and of course, it didn't belong to his father either. So when you're in a hole, George, stop digging. So that was the rather unfortunate, um, not quite the end of that. If you want to read about the case, you can look it up in the Proceedings of the Old Bailey. You will get the, a, a fairly detailed account of some of the witness statements. The, the easiest thing is if you just search for the 
search term of Boynton, and then you will get the whole sorry story. Um, there's rather a nice little bit in, in Captain George's witness statement, uh, so that this this um, he hadn't he said he hadn't had much to do with his son. He very rarely seen him, and that he was the son from his first marriage. Uh, to, his, to his first wife from whom uh, he was divorced and some money was settled on her. Which is, well, yes, she got her money back. That's what you actually meant to say. So that was you know, the, the two Georges um, who seemed to have had, plainly had some sort of charm, some sort of influence with the ladies because young George, his first wife um, had, had now died and um, he married again. Now, this is where it gets interesting. When I said that you look at a number of different records, and I've looked at records of National Archives, I've looked at parish records, and I've looked at some legal records and lots of things that are in the newspapers, one of the sources that you might well want to look at if you are researching a family like the Boyntons, who are a very, very old aristocratic family, titles, land, the lot, you'd look in... Debrets and Burks and, and these um, very respectable peerage books. Yes, you would, but you cannot trust everything that you see in all of those books. If you look for the entry in the Boynton family, and you'll find there's, there's George, first married Elizabeth Laura Keeling, and then second um, Elizabeth Pree, and, and then you'll, you'll find young George, and then his first marriage, and then his second marriage. Well, it says that he married, secondly, Lillian Constance Smith, or Smythe, in 1886, and they had a daughter born in 1888. Well, yes, they did have a daughter born in 1888, but the date of their marriage was actually 1891. And I know this because I have seen a copy of the certificate. So... Um, Somebody just must have made a slip of the pen when they were submitting the information uh, to the peerage books. Or they could have been deliberately um, just glossing over the fact that, you know, just to add to his bankruptcy and to his criminal record and his just general bad behaviour, he was... Um, He'd also had a child out of wedlock, but at least he did marry the mother eventually. But the child was actually born in the lying-in hospital in Endell Street, which is a, an, an odd sort of place for the, uh, the grand, uh, or for the, the great-grandchild of a peer to be born, don't you think? Um, but it's all there in black and white, so that, that's a salutary tale about the um, not trusting the peerage books. Now, I've been talking about the Boynton family, and there is loads more in the Boynton family that I'm sure could be unearthed uh, and make a terrific uh, mini-series. But sometimes it takes a few years before a particular penny drops. And when I was looking at the, at, at the, the Boynton-Keeling thing and the, uh, the circumstances around her, the, the, this first news, this clandestine marriage in St George Hanover Square, the whole point of this was that she was an only child and therefore she copped the whole lot of this very considerable sum that her father had left. But when I looked at the newspaper reports and also at um, Mrs Keeling's will, well she was by now Mrs Hodges having married Captain Trophimus Hodges, there are mentions of two daughters who are also called Keeling. And I thought that can't be right because the whole point that this story rests on is that Elizabeth Laura Keeling was an only child. But she has these two other daughters. Well, maybe they were born from an earlier marriage and they were brought up with the name of Keeling. Yes, that makes sense. That's a reasonable guess. It's also completely wrong. When I looked into it, and I was looking at PCC wills and looking at uh, printed pedigrees, because the Keelings were worth a few bob. They'd made a lot of money in uh, plantations in the West Indies. It turned out that prior to marrying Thomas Keeling in 1827, Anne, whose name was Chaplin, by the way, um, Henry, uh, Thomas Keeling very obligingly mentioned in his will that his wife was called Anne, formerly Anne Chaplin, which is an unusually helpful thing to have in a will. 
But prior to marrying Thomas Keeling in 1827, she had plainly been on very intimate terms with his uncle Henry. His uncle Henry died in 1831, but in his will, which is extremely long, but um, to his credit he does give a lot of detail, and he mentions in his will, he's going to leave money to his natural daughter Rosetta by Anne Chaplin, and very conveniently gives the date and place of her baptism as well, which is nice. And his other natural daughter, Eliza Mary, by Anne Chaplin. So at least he's completely up front of it. So she was never married to the uncle, so her marriage to Thomas Keeling was perfectly valid. But she had been the uncle's mistress. Um, and he, was, he doesn't seem to have ever married, but um, he does seem to have put himself about a bit, shall we say, because he also mentions in his will, he leaves money to James Todd Keeling, a mulatto natural son by Anne Todd, a free coloured woman of Antigua, which is where their plantations were. Um, and then also to Eliza Marie Keeling, Margaret Keeling, a free coloured woman of Antigua, natural daughters of his deceased brother, Thomas Keeling, uh, by Mary Andrews, a free coloured woman. So it gives an interesting light into plantation life in the West Indies. Not that this is news to anybody who's studied um, the, the plantations uh, uh, of the West Indies. But um, the, his deceased brother, Thomas, by the way, was the father of the, the nephew, Thomas, that he passed the mistress on to. So I haven't really done a huge amount on the Keelings, but it looks as though they might repay quite a lot of further study as well. So um, it just shows when you start digging, you never know what you're going to find. And this all started with that one document, Mr. Prickett's very indignant letter to the Home Secretary about something which was, really shouldn't be there because there was nothing the Home Secretary was going to do about it, nothing he could do about it. Um, but it opens up our whole story. And I'm sure there is lots more to find. And I'm sure there are lots more similar stories if you pick open one of these documents. And it's always the ones that you find by accident or when you're looking for something else. Uh, but there are some amazing stories, not just here in the National Archives, but in all sorts of other places as well, in local record offices and specialist record offices. And I know you can't believe everything you read in the papers or come to that Burks and Debrett's. But they're really good clues to stuff that you can follow up in original records. And there's just lots and lots of wonderful uncovered stuff there. And I wonder why I never have to get bother to read very much fiction. I don't need to. <coughs> you couldn't make this stuff up. But if somebody says that sounds a bit far-fetched, well, it, that's as maybe. But it's all true, and I can prove it. Thank you. This talk was recorded on the 21st of November 2013 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.